Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. We've had the fangs, the magma stocks, and now it's the so-called Magnificent Seven. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Nvidia, and Tesla. The Nasdaq is up almost 40% this year and just 10% off its all-time highs. But it's the seven largest US tech stocks which have contributed half of the performance in global equities this quarter and calendar year. It's Alison Savas. This is another quarterly update episode. So it does feel like the growth trade is back, but as you just heard, the equity rally has become increasingly unbalanced. In this episode, we're going to discuss what this narrow performance in equities really means, along with how the macro backdrop could impact markets. We're also going to shift focus back to the Antipodes portfolio, including a discussion around broader positioning, and we'll delve into two stocks we've been buying, one of the world's largest brewers and the largest online retailer in the developed world. Joining me for the next 30 minutes or so is Ramiz Sadakot, Portfolio Manager and Head of Antipodes Quant, Macro and Currency. Welcome back, Ramiz. Well, thanks for having me again. So the anticipation around recession in the West has dominated the quarter. But before we get into our broader macro views, let's start with the market. Performance over the quarter and even the last six months has been very narrow, driven by just seven stocks. What do you think the market is telling us? Yeah, it's really intriguing. You're, you're kind of bombarded by headlines at the moment. When you hear that the S&P is just 5% from the all-time highs, you'd be forgiven for thinking the market's roaring and painting a pretty optimistic picture of the world. But headline indices mask a, a lot of detail and, and a lot can be going on beneath the surface. So, for example, the S&P is up about 20% over the year. If you remove the Magnificent 7, it's up around 8%. So seven stocks alone have contributed to the majority of the S&P's performance. And so I guess we need to ask ourselves what's going on. And I think there are a couple of reasons. So first, investors have gravitated towards businesses that they feel are defensives. The, the mega cap tech names, they, they carry a perception of having these, these fortified moats and, and strong pricing power. And, and on top of that, these names are also beneficiaries of the AI revolution, which is seen as the the next bastion of structural growth. And so what you're seeing is that earnings have been quite resilient as cost cutting has offset the slowdown in top, top line growth. The market has become a lot more constructive about their earnings power over the next few years. And a lot of future hope has been priced into multiples as a as a group, the, the, the MAG7 or the Magnificent 7, they've re-rated to around 30 times next year's earnings. So at a meaningful premium to the S&P. You could argue as well that we've had this really quite significant, quite large one-off injection of liquidity into markets from the U.S. Treasury. So the, the U.S. Treasury likes to keep a pretty stable cash balance in the bank. But during the call it the, the back and forth of negotiating whether to lift the debt ceiling, the Treasury has essentially had to spend their savings without having the means to replenish the piggy bank, per se. And in doing so, they've injected enough liquidity into the system to offset quantitative tightening. That extra liquidity has most likely added fuel to the fire. So to answer the question, what does it all mean? Well, 
the first thing I'd say is that the narrow performance of equities doesn't necessarily indicate animal spirits are alive and well. We're not really seeing a return to the broad-based growth at any price duration bubble we saw in 2021. And that's you know more or less consistent with rural rates that are at 1.6% and rising. But we're also not seeing outperformance of the more traditional defensive sectors either. Just a narrow subset of stocks that are perceived to be both defensive and have structural growth prospects. So the market's the market's almost hedging its bets, and it's not really expressing a lot of conviction either way. The macro, the macro backdrop today is, and and this is true globally, the, the manufacturing sector is in contraction. The services sector is quite strong, and whilst goods and energy inflation is falling, services ex-shelter inflation remains quite sticky. Now there's a a continuum of outcomes here between a hard and a soft landing for the US economy. But on the margin, what we think is happening is the market is pricing in an improvement in this this growth inflation mix. So the market is saying that growth will remain relatively resilient while inflation recedes and and the Fed will ultimately be able to very gently ease off the brakes as opposed to slamming on them to avoid a recession. Ramiz, you touched on valuations there, and, I, and I'd like to take a closer look at valuations. US equities are priced at around 23 times the prior 12-month earnings, which is around 10% more expensive than the average multiple over the last 10 years. Now, on top of this, consensus forecasts are assuming that full-year 23 earnings will be flat on a year-on-year basis, despite the tightening that's already in place. And consensus is factoring in a 14% increase in earnings per share in calendar year 24. So, Ramiz, the market seems to be pricing in clearer skies, but is there margin for error if this doesn't play out as the as the market expects? Yeah, um, clearer skies does seem to be the consensus, but the the juxtaposition is that we're we're only just beginning to see the lagged effects of monetary tightening on credit growth and and every lead indicator points to a weaker growth outlook and if and if the leading indicators are right we could see a 15% drawdown in US earnings that would see US equities reach approximately 26 times earnings which is still a substantial premium to its own history and the rest of the world which has already gone through an earnings downgrade cycle. So valuations, for example, in Europe and China are closer to 13, 14 times earnings. Now take take mega cap tech in the US, for example. The growth profile of these businesses is changing. As many of these businesses naturally mature, growth rates are slowing, and they're becoming more sensitive to the economic cycle. And in, in some cases, the competitive dynamics are shifting as well which will ultimately impact their earnings multiples or impact the earnings multiples these businesses can command. So there isn't a lot of a, a margin for error in US equities, even though the range of outcomes remains very wide. We do think that activity will slow down more sharply and you have the risk then that the Fed over tightens or just takes too long to pause as it focuses on wage inflation. So. Um, Current valuations don't appear to be uh, compensating for these risks. 
And a few weeks ago, we had Ian Harnett from Absolute Strategy Research on this podcast, um, and he's a highly respected macro forecaster. He's adamant the West is still heading toward recession, and I know that's our investment team's base case as well. Have you seen any data more recently that has changed your thinking? Yeah, we've got to be a little bit careful about confirmation bias because... (laughs) You know, I really, really like what the guys at Absolute Strategy do, but the data, you know, thankfully is very objective. So the services sector, that has been supporting economic activity globally, and that is beginning to lose momentum. No real change, you know, manufacturing, construction, house prices, world trade, they they kind of remain and continue to remain under pressure. The leading indicators point to continued weakness as the full impact of monetary tightening is is yet to be transmitted to the real economy. The monetary regime today is tighter than it has been for the last 15 years and and we think that's going to be challenging for growth. So what we're seeing today in inflation, GDP, industrial production, for example, is is the result of, of tightening, which was actually done months ago. The, the lags to monetary policy range between 12 to 18 months, so, so the full impact is actually yet to be felt. And when you look at the US, money supply is contracting at around, call it 7% on a three-month annualized basis. And it's contracting faster than it ever has before due to quantitative tightening, but it's also the the tidy lending standards that are that are um, that are having a hand in this as well, and in turn, private sector credit growth is beginning to slow. and And on top of that, the the capital position of the banks they they remain under pressure. Without rate cuts, credit standards, and the desire to lend will continue to tighten. The Fed, you know, the Fed is laser focused on inflation, and Right now, inflation is very much tied to the labor market, specifically wage growth. While overall inflation is falling, wages are still growing by about 4 to 4.5% per annum because the labor market remains very tight. There's still 1.8 jobs for every unemployed person, which is well above the historical mean. And it's been driven by an all-time high working age participation rate. That's why wages continue to grow at above trend rates, and and that's circling back into services inflation. If the Fed really wants to ensure it has inflation under control, it's going to have to slow the growth in wages, and it it can only do that if it engineers a slowdown in economic growth, which means tight policy. Another data point I saw earlier this week, and Alison, I don't know if you remember from your analyst days, but Albert Edwards from SockGen, I mean, he he put out this really interesting chart. And if you go back as far as the 70s, every time policy rates have risen in the US, so too have net interest payments for the corporate sector. And that's ultimately and eventually meaningfully squeezed margins. But somewhat counterintuitively, given we know how much leverage there is in the system, this time around, interest payments have actually collapsed. And that's likely a function of corporates locking in ultra-low fixed-rate funding and then parking the excess cash in variable rate deposits. So they've, they've actually played the hiking cycle to their favor in a manner that they haven't done before. But what it 
does tell you is the Fed's policy isn't having the usual effect. Two things typically happen when the Fed tightens. Initially, interest costs go up, causing margins to fall. Then, with a bit of a lag, investment and top-line growth slow. So now, just because the former hasn't happened doesn't mean the latter won't, and it might simply mean that the Fed has more work to do to create that slack that they need to in the labour market. And as you continue to consider and wait all of the data that is coming in, where do you think the, the surprises to the upside could come from? I think it could come from uh, non-resi investment, which to date has you know, been remarkably resilient, uh, much more resilient than the manufacturing sector. And it's likely that's related to policies around decarbonisation and supply chain security, like the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act in, in the US. But if non-residential construction growth proves to be much more structural, I, I think it will provide some support to the economic activity. So that's, that's something that we're tracking, uh, tracking quite closely. I think it could also come from more policy support and China's the most likely candidate here. It's no secret that activity in China is slowing and, and the policy response to date has been cautious to say the least. I mean, I, I think, you know, a lack of improvement in the domestic economy or, or further weakening in the global economy should see policymakers push towards even more stimulus, given that they've got a meaningful, you know, they've got meaningful firepower to act, they've zero inflation and and the risk you know, the, the the ongoing risk of social instability if the labor market fails to recover further. And in China, youth unemployment has skyrocketed now to 20%. Additional stimulus from China won't just support domestic recovery. Um, you know, given the size of that economy, it can also change the, the global economic outlook, uh, even without an expectation of the, the big bank stimulus that we've had in the past. And it could also come... In China, you know, that, that could also come from non-bank financial institutions plugging the credit gap from the traditional banking sector. It's, um, it's important to remember that the, the shadow banking system isn't subject to the same regulation and reserve rationing as the, the, traditional, banking se- the traditional banking sector, and it, and it hasn't been stress-tested for higher rates, tighter, tighter conditions at its current size. So it's not entirely clear to us how long this can continue. Ramiz, I think that gives us a a really good summary of the puts and takes in the current environment. And so what I'd like to do now is shift the focus to the portfolio. How are these macro views influencing current portfolio positioning? Yeah, given given the current current environment and our our outlook, we're still defensively positioned and, and just containing the global portfolio's exposure to cyclicality in, in, in preference for attractively priced quality and growth while maintaining the tilt to value. The portfolio's exposure to, call it the more defensive parts of the market, probably sits at around a third. And some examples, so uh, we have uh, our healthcare cluster, and that's anchored by Sanofi and Merck, stocks that we've spoken about many times in the past and they remain in our top 10. We like them both because they they generate around one third of their revenues from long duration sticky businesses. So for Sanofi, that's vaccines, including the, the flu vaccine and consumer health, which is 
basically over-the-counter remedies and, and, and health supplements. And, and Merck also has a, a strong vaccine business and an animal health business. They both have interesting opportunities to grow those businesses. Um, you know, the, the patent cliffs are, are manageable and both have much lower drug pricing risk relative to peers. And, and they're priced at low double-digit multiples with, you know, with earnings growth in the, the high single digits range. So that's, that's the, the healthcare cluster. We've also got what we believe to be you know, relatively reasonably priced cloud and software exposures. So stocks like Oracle, which is um, it's, it's benefiting from the, the continued transition of ERP or, or enterprise resource planning software to the cloud. And they're taking market share because transitioning to a subscription-based service is much more affordable for smaller businesses from a, uh, from a cash flow perspective. And within that, there are also opportunities to upsell AI features within the, external, uh, the, the existing install base. And additionally, the business is seeing significant growth in its, its cloud infrastructure business. And um, as part of that, that group, uh, or related to that group, we've also been buying into uh, Amazon's lagging performance. We have also been building our exposure to consumer staples uh, uh, via Heineken, which complements our position in Diageo. Uh, both companies are, uh, are leaders in their respective segments, whether that is uh, premium beer for Heineken or, or spirits for Diageo. Diageo is the largest Western spirits company with an almost close to 10% share. And, and this is an industry where two-thirds of the category is represented by small-scale local players. And Diageo has got exposure to popular brands in categories like tequila and scotch that are taking market share. Both of these companies have strong pricing power, which, which protects profitability and exposure to emerging markets which can support their longer-term growth profiles. So both of these stocks are, are priced at or below the, the broader consumer staples universe, despite being of better-than-average quality and with higher growth prospects. So you mentioned Heineken and Amazon, you know, two defensive businesses that we've been buying. Let's start with Heineken. What makes Heineken an interesting investment today? Well, well, beer is a um, it's a typically resilient segment in a weak consumer environment, and Heineken is the the second largest brewer in the world. It's it's growing faster than peers because it's it's over indexed to the call it the, the premium segment with premium beer growing twice as fast as the the mainstream category and is more profitable than mainstream beer. And not only do they have a strong market position. Heineken's a, a beneficiary of reopening as consumption in restaurants and bars is higher margin than consumption at home. Plus, the, the company is benefiting from an improving product cycle as it expands into new categories and, and, and variants like non-alcoholic and, and flavor products. And the company expands beyond beer, uh, for example, cider. These elements, you know, they, they're going to combine to drive sales and earnings growth. On the cost side... That's quite interesting. You know, raw material costs are falling, and and we think that's going to provide an additional support to profitability. And as I touched on earlier, it has exposure to emerging markets like India, China, Brazil, and Africa, where 
where, where per capita consumption is still far lower than developed markets. And that'll support the longer term growth profile of the business. So when you look at how it's priced today, the company is trading on around 17 times forward earnings, which is a, a near trough multiple relative to the last decade with earnings forecasts grow low double digits over the medium term. The valuation is undemanding relative to peers and, and the broader staple sector, despite having a superior growth profile. And what about Amazon? Circling back to where our conversation started today, there has been a lot of focus on mega cap tech and a lot of hype around AI. And yeah, AI will absolutely infiltrate our lives in ways we are yet to fully appreciate, but it's still a long way from broad monetization. And there will be as many losers as winners, especially as more and more capital is deployed. And as you called out earlier, mega cap tech isn't cheap. So how do you reconcile these comments with the decision to add to Amazon over the quarter? So we, we do have some exposure to mega cap tech in the portfolio, uh, but we are underweight, the, the benchmark, and, and we've been quite selective in our approach here. So our preference has been cloud and software businesses where we have seen an upside to adoption and an easier monetization of AI within existing software. But as a consequence of what we've seen in the last quarter um, in the markets, you know, multiple dispersion has actually expanded. So, so multiple dispersion is the, the ratio of the most expensive stocks relative to the cheaper stocks. The most expensive stocks have become even more expensive relative to the cheaper stocks over the last three months. Now, that's something that's happening between regions, between sectors, and also within sectors, and, and this includes tech. And Amazon has actually lagged other parts of the mega cap tech complex over the last 12 months over concerns around the company's growth profile um, and its profitability and and also more recently a, a view that the company won't be as big a beneficiary of AI relative to its peers. And as those concerns have manifested, um, it's presented an opportunity for us to buy Amazon at, at, at fairly attractive valuations. And it actually looks quite cheap from a, from a few different angles. So today it's priced at around a 40% discount to its sum of the parts valuation on, a, on an EV to revenue multiple relative to peers. So what I mean by that is if you apply a peer EV to revenue multiple to Amazon's various business segments, it's typically been priced at about one times its peers. Today, it's priced at a 40% discount. And another way to contextualize the valuation is that on our on our analysis uh, AWS um, which is Amazon Web Services at the cloud business it's worth around 900 billion on, on a on a discounted cash flow basis based on Amazon's current EV that would leave the retail business valued at just 500 billion or around 0.5 time 0.5 times Amazon's GMV uh, GMV is the the, uh, the gross merchandising value and um, effectively the, the value of all the goods sold through Amazon. And, and that's, that's very low compared to peers. 
which are typically valued at about one times GMB. So on these valuation metrics, we think that there is a place for Amazon in a pragmatic value portfolio. And do you see the opportunity in Amazon's e-commerce business or the cloud infrastructure business, or, or is it both? It's in both. US e-commerce is still only around 20% of total retail sales. That's going to continue to increase. And, and given Amazon's investments in warehousing, logistics, last mile delivery, not to mention AI, which translates to better inventory management and faster delivery times, Amazon is going to continue to take market share, particularly in high growth, low penetration categories. And on top of this, profitability is set to inflect as projects to reduce costs and increase efficiency are nearing completion. On the on the cloud infrastructure business, so that's that's AWS, AWS isn't growing as fast as Microsoft's Azure. But we've got to remember that AWS is two times the size of Azure. And it's 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 hard to predict the, the precise cadence of of cloud growth. Uh, but despite that, only we have to remember that only 29% of application workloads have, have moved to the cloud. So there is scope for increasing cloud penetration. And independent surveys suggest penetration will reach 45% by the end of 2025. And, and we have a margin of safety in the valuation. On artificial intelligence and, and machine learning, uh, the market's perception that its peers will be greater beneficiaries of this theme. And, and we believe that the market might be missing the investments that Amazon has made. In our view, the company will benefit from better personalization and, and high operational efficiency on the retail side, while on the AWS side, Amazon will be a key player in, in helping companies who are looking to make the AI transition within their own business. And to round out our conversation around the portfolio, how is the team thinking about the more economically sensitive part of the market, you know, particularly in the context of a base case that the West is heading into a recession? There's been a, a shift in rhetoric to a, what, what, what is called a, a tangible-led investment cycle as, as policymakers around the world address climate change and security. And, and I mentioned earlier that these investment cycles may already be underway. So where we do have cyclical exposures in the portfolio is where we want to position for this change. We have around a third of the portfolio in energy transition, supply chain security, and onshoring, the beneficiaries of these emerging investment cycles. And there are many businesses in this space that are not efficiently priced because we're still in the early stages of this secular shift in investment. But we do think that these businesses will feature as tomorrow's secular winners. We also have to remember that these are going to be really long duration and costly investment cycles. So for example, developed markets are going to be required to make incremental investments, we think of at least 3% of GDP per annum for the next several decades to meet climate goals, and with even greater investment required by emerging markets. They are labor, capital, and commodity intensive and, and inflationary because they this investment solves for risk rather than for productivity. 
Now, if the leading indicators end up evolving to suggest that the Fed can engineer a soft landing and, and bypass a recession altogether, culminating in a dovish pivot, I think it will become quite appropriate to lean into those cyclical exposures. Mm. And and I think portfolio holding Total Energies, uh, the French-listed oil and gas major, is a good example of positioning for the decarbonisation investment cycle, isn't it? Um, you know, net zero is the goal. But the starting point is a world where about 70% of primary energy still comes from oil, gas and coal. And since gas has half the emissions of coal per unit of electricity produced, it does have an important role to play in that journey to decarbonisation. Yeah, that's. I think that's right. I mean, what we like about Total is is it generates half of its upstream profits from natural gas and and the other half from oil. But the the company it's investing in what we term green realism. So it's a it's a recognition that fossil fuels they're not going to disappear overnight, but need phasing out through reinvestment in other energy sources and funded through their existing business. More than half of their capex is is going towards gas and, and gas is a, a a transitional energy source, renewables, hydrogen and other transitional technologies like biomass with the with the remainder of new projects um, or the remainder being spent on new projects and uh, sustaining the existing oil business. Total's management, you know, they've they've indicated that by 2030, half of the company's revenues are going to be gas, with oil falling to 30%. Another interesting addition uh, to the portfolio is, um, and it's, it's more recent addition is uh, Saint-Cobain, and they provide lightweight and energy efficient building materials like insulation. Over 70% of their products are, are related to sustainability. So Saint-Cobain will also be a beneficiary of the energy transition. And the company is doing, they're doing lots of interesting things. So for example, they've achieved the first zero carbon and, and that's scope one and two emissions. So the, the first zero carbon production of glass. Um, and they're receiving all materials and, and repurposing them into new products. So, I mean, the, the company's listed in France more than 60% of the earnings come from North America and and emerging markets, and it's um, you know it's priced on a a multiple for around 10 times forward earnings, which it's a it's a trough multiple relative to the last decade, and um, you know it's become it's derated because of concerns over over housing construction in Europe and the US. But but you know what we think the market is missing is that over 50% of the business is exposed to the relatively resilient renovation market. Well, thank you for your time today, Romance. I think that's been a, a fantastic quarter of Thanks, Alison. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when the next episode goes live in a few weeks. For further information on antiquities, head to my website, antiquities.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.